Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm Joseph Barra, and joining me today is Shannon. Hi. Today we are going to talk about Nellie Bly, America's first, uh, how would you phrase her, investigative journalist, I yeah. believe is the proper term. So she was born on May 5th, 1864, during the Civil War, as Elizabeth Cochran Seaman in what is now Pittsburgh. Her father, Michael Cochran, owned Cochran Mills. He would be married twice and have 15 children. Nellie would be the 13th daughter. Man, he's got a lot of daughters. Man, put that together. Um, and her mom is Mary Jane Kennedy, which would be her father's second wife. Now, when she was young, she would often be called Pinky because she frequently wore pink clothing. It's How original. Yeah, yeah, it's very creative. It's like, oh, you're wearing blue jeans. We'll call you Bluey. Not like the dog on Disney. Well, anyway, as she became a teenager, she would try to become more sophisticated and change her last name to Cochran with an E. Not sure how that makes her more sophisticated, but worth a try. She then goes to Indiana Normal School in 1879, which is ironically not in Indiana, but in Pennsylvania. Um, and her first public writing came in response to an article in the local newspaper that was called, What Are Girls Good For?, um, what you are going to see is she has to deal with a whole lot of sexism in her life. This is the 1890s where um, women's roles in society wasn't really that grand yet. All right. Um, in the article, it said the girls were only good at having babies and cleaning the house. She's going to write a counter to the piece under the name Lonely Orphan. The editor is so impressed with the article that they took out an ad asking the writer to identify themselves. When Nellie came forward, she was offered the opportunity to write another article under Lonely Orphan. Her follow-up article was entitled The Girl Puzzle, in which she argued for reform of divorce laws. Um, the editor, once again, was so impressed, offered her a full-time job, chose to give her the name Nellie Bly. Which he spelled wrong. He did spell wrong. He spelled it N-E-L-L-I-E. -L -L -E. It was supposed to be like a Stephen Foster song, yes. and then he just... Have you ever heard the song? I haven't. Might need to listen to that later. Right. It was customary for women writers to take pen names back then um, because it wasn't very common to see women writers within the newspapers. Uh, while working for the Pittsburgh Dispatch, she focused most of her writing on the lives of working women. She investigated what working conditions were like in factories. Um, and if you know anything about Industrial Revolution factories, they probably were not great. People were always losing body parts, getting hair tangled in things. It was pretty gnarly stuff. Uh, newspaper would begin getting complaints from the factory owners, and soon she was moved to cover fashion, which was deemed more appropriate for a woman to do. She was not happy with this job, so she goes to Mexico when she's 21 as a foreign correspondent. She is going to be the first female correspondent ever to do this. There, she would report on the lives and customs of the Mexican people. Eventually, these articles would be transformed into the book Six Months in Mexico. One of her articles criticized the Mexican government for the imprisonment of a journalist, then dictator of Mexico. Oh, geez. Porfirio Diaz threatened to have her arrested, so she flees to the country and continues to call Diaz a tyrant in her writings. Her most famous works, though, will be when she decides to go undercover and infiltrate a mental asylum. 
So after four months trying to find a job in New York City, Bly, now 23, had convinced her way into Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World. Pulitzer is a big, big deal back then, hence the name of the prize after him, the Pulitzer Prize for the best journalist. Um, you have these like newspaper wars going on where they're trying to outdo each other with stories. So he is looking at for a way to basically sell new, new, news, new newspapers. He, he's known for the start of yellow journalism, I believe. Yes. yes. We, just, we just talked about yellow journalism in a previous one. That's how the Spanish-American War starts, uh-huh. where basically you take an event, you over-exaggerate it to get people all riled up so they continue buying your newspaper. Uh, her editor, John Cockrell, proposed that she needed to prove her worth to the company by going undercover as a patient at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell Island. Institute had many complaints against it for brutality and neglect of its patients. Um, during this time period, there's not a whole lot known about mental illness. Um, some of the treatments are are just completely barbaric. Uh, the most one of the more famous ones is called the Snake Pit. It's where they dig a giant hole, throw you in it, and then throw snakes on you thinking that the snakes would scare the crazy out of you. Yikes. Also, you're starting to see the beginnings of electroshock therapy, which they tie electrodes to your brain, and they think they could shock the crazy out of you. There's, there's all sorts of – they have no clue. They think it's like – they're still living in a time where they think, they, may, they think it's like bad spirits in your head, and you got to get those bad things out. Like they have no clue what's going on. Um, Cockrell said Bly would have to get herself involuntarily committed to the, to live in the Institute for 10 days in order to get a story. When later asked how he would get Bly out of the asylum, he responded, I don't know. Well, that's uplifting. Go, go here, Nelly. Yeah, don't know how you're going to get your out, but just, just go act like, yeah. Uh, Bly knew little about mental illness. But did know she needed the work, so she took the challenge. She changes her name to Nellie Brown and moves into a temporary home for working women. It was a dark boarding house in a working class district, the Bowery. Once moving in, Bly would begin to rant incoherently and behave erratically. Within, within a few days, residents believed she was losing her mind. One resident told the landlady, I'm afraid to stay with such a crazy being in the house. Another would say she will murder us all by the morning. She's doing a good job then. She is doing a good job, yes. She is she is doing a fine job acting and she is terrifying all these poor working women in this in this boarding house. Um, and just an example of how well she was pulling off her her um, second identity here. On the second night, she's gonna be awoken by a blood curdling scream. All right. Um, the women, woman next door had a nightmare where she dreamt that Nellie was stabbing her to death, so she was screaming in her sleep. Nellie's like, I'm in. <laughs> Boarding house employees would call the police, and they would escort her to court. There she would claim her real name was Nellie Moreno, a Cuban maiden of Spanish aristocracy, suffering from amnesia that left her friendless and abandoned in New York City. The judge, feeling that he, uh, she was someone's sweetheart gone astray, asked the press to run a news story to see if anyone would be able to alert the lost soul's family. Being afraid of being discovered, Nellie would cover her face and scream, I don't want to see any reporters. 
So the judge will send her to Bellevue Hospital for a psychological evaluation. The doctor said that Moreno suffered from dementia and delusions of persecution. So they send her to the mental asylum. Unable to take notes once getting there, Bly would memorize all the details um, that she was witnessing from her trip to the asylum to her life in the asylum. This ranged from the filthy ferry ride to the islands that was filled with screams and cries. One account was on how the massive female attendants on the ferry spit chewing tobacco in a more skillful manner than any man that she ever saw. That would be disgusting. Yeah. They used to spit it into a spittoon, big bucket, and they would just spit stuff in it, and then they would just, like, throw it on the ground. All right, so the asylum was was built in 1839. It was considered state-of-the-art at the time. It was supposed to house a thousand patients. By 1887, though, he had extreme overcrowding. There was now 1,600 patients and a decreasing budget to take care of them, and the infrastructure of the asylum was deteriorating. In the 1800s, very little, like I said, was known about mental illness. Society saw those suffering from mental illness as oddballs and murderously violent. People would even treat patients like they would animals in a zoo. Famously, Charles Dickens would pick, uh, pack picnics and watch patients at insane asylums. He found that entertaining. Quite a thrill seeker. Yes. It was like, hey, let's go on a Sunday picnic and watch a bunch of people with mental illness run around. Uh, it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. New York Times to even write about the asylum's crazy person of the week. So they would send someone to the asylum and be like, oh, this is the craziest person we've seen this week. Congratulations, there's now a newspaper article on you. You win. (laughs) Uh, She would soon find that the conditions in the asylum were horrid. Food was rancid, water was disgusting, patients were force-fed. The whole place was a fire hazard, and many patients were tied down to beds. She would write, witchy, vicious nurses choked, beat, and harassed deluded patients. I was forced to share towels with crazy patients who had the most vile eruptions all over their faces. Now, I don't know if she's saying, like, by bile eruptions, like, are they, ah, like, screaming and all that stuff? Or if they literally have, like, sores over their faces or have thrown up all over their faces? Probably a combination. Probably a combination of all three. Yeah. (laughs) Either way, not good. Um, She's shocked at what she was seeing. She dropped the act and tried to act sane. She would then write, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier they thought I was. Her baths consisted of three freezing buckets of water over her head. She wrote, my teeth chattered and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue. The sensation felt as if I was drowning. So it almost sounds like they're waterboarding her. Hmm. Um, And they then basically would put them into a nightgown. When she asked for a proper one, they said, we have no such things here. You're in a public institution. Don, uh, don't expect anything or any kindness here for you won't get it. The attendant then proceeded to lock her in the room. I'm not checking back up on it. Uh, that night, Howells would bring across the asylum. Uh, she learned that the person that was screaming had died. Nurses had beaten her, pinned her in a cold bath, and then thrown her onto a bed. Uh, the ruled cause of death was convulsion. So what you're seeing is you have the asylum staff basically killing people, and they're covering them up at this point. Saying, no, they were just being crazy, and that's what killed them. Uh, Bly would still learn that many of the women were poor immigrants. One woman was put in the asylum because her heavily accented German was mistaking for gibberish of an insane person. 
So now we're just throwing people in the insane asylum because they speak a different language. I think that, yeah, I think that happened like a lot. Quite a bit. People, people just couldn't speak English or they were new immigrants. They're like, oh, you're going to the asylum. I need a new crazy person this week. <laughs> the land of opportunity. <laughs> Where does it say that on the Statue of Liberty? Take your huddled masses and your poor and we may throw you in a insane asylum because you speak a different language. Oh, good old xenophobia. All right. Jealous husband had a wife committed and another woman was committed because she lost her temper at work. And they're like, oh, she must be nuts. All right. So just about all sorts of weird things could get you thrown in a mental asylum. Uh, Nellie would stroll the asylum grounds and saw patients walking two by two by guarded, uh, guarded by attendants. Nurses accompanied a line of women who were tied together by ropes. The women were cursing, yelling, singing, and praying. These were the most violent women in the asylum. Missing girls' relatives searched the asylum for them. Um, because, like I said, if you were just, like, having a bad day and someone, like, spilled water on you, and you're like, ah, they'd throw you in the asylum for being crazy. Yeah. That's just, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> There'd be a lot of people in asylums these days. Yeah. Uh um, so George McCain, a reporter from the Post-Dispatch, had gone looking for Nellie Moreno to write a follow-up story. McCain had talked his way onto the island, claiming uh, he was searching for a lost relative. When Bly was brought to him, she whispered, don't give me away. He responded, this is not the woman I came in search of. Um, after 10 days in the asylum, Cockrell kept his word and sent an attorney, Peter Henricks, to spring her. Uh, Bly would quickly begin writing her piece. On October 9th, 1887, her first article was titled Behind Asylum Walls. Two weeks later, she would release Inside the Madhouse. She would write, Born silly, Eureen Little Page was a 33-year-old woman who claimed she was 18 and would grow hysterically if contradicted. Nurses would slap her face and knock her head, causing Eureen to cry more. So they choked her and then dragged her into the closet. The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It's easy to get in, but once there, it's impossible to get out. Both editions are going to quickly sell out. Um, and her reporting is going to present shocking content and substantive allegations against asylum. She's later going to testify in front of a grand jury that the island's barred windows and locked doors were disasters in waiting. Tyrannical nurses choked, beat, and harassed patients. Food was rotten. Utensils non-existent. Patient upon patient used the same murky bathwater. The asylum washed patient uniforms monthly. Patients are injected with so much morphine and chloroform that they are made crazy. In response, Dr. Charles Simmons, the head of the city's charities and corrections board, invited the mayor to inspect the asylum. Because of Bly's reports, the conditions of the asylum were made substantially better. They got rid of incompetent workers, and they increased the budget by a million dollars, which in 1890 was quite a bit of money. Uh, for her reporting, she was hired to be a staff writer, earning $12 a day, uh, and she's going to quickly become a star. For the next two years, she'd continue her investigative reporting. She went incognito as a maid to expose crooked employment agencies. She researched illicit trade in children where she bought a baby for $10. Hmm. So I guess people back in the 1890s were just selling their babies. Yeah, I guess so. There was I mean, a black market on babies. babies. And that's 
weird. Um, she even posed as a thief so she could get arrested and investigate how women were treated in jails. But once she got there, the guards recognized who she was and treated her very, very nicely, unlike the, how they were probably treating everybody else. All right. So eventually, though, she kind of burns out. Um, she she's, she kind of got tired of doing undercover work. Um, so she'd moved to what was called stunts. Um, and these were just once, once again, it was like people doing crazy things, them writing about it and trying to sell more newspapers. So it'd be like, look at this person. They are jumping off a cliff into the ocean. Woo! <laughs> All right. So in 1873, Jules Verne had written the classic bestseller Around the World in 80 Days. Bly was fascinated by the book and pitched the idea of circumnavigating the globe faster than 80 days. She basically was racing the fictional character in the book. Her editors, though, wanted a man to go instead. They explained um, how could a woman travel the globe unaccompanied um, and also... They had concerns that she would pack too much luggage and would defeat herself in the process. But this is this is Nellie we're talking about. Yeah, she's, she's she, ain't, she ain't gonna take this. She says, fine, start the man. I'll start the same day for another newspaper and beat him. The world caved and allowed Bly to start the journey. After a years of planning and going with about 200 pounds of British currency, Bly would arrive in Hoboken, New Jersey, aboard the Hamburg Line steamship Augusta Victoria. It was November 14th, 1889, and she would start her 24,899 mile journey as a vacation. Her journey will take her to London, then to the Mediterranean, then to Egypt, then through the Suez Canal to Sri Lanka, on to Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, on a boat for a long ride to San Francisco, and then a train back to the East Coast. The paper is going to promote the journey by creating an illustrated game and a pool guessing details of her arrivals. I guess if you were like guessing the stuff right, they'd give you like a prize. Bly would travel by whatever means necessary. She went from luxury liner. She even rode a burrow at one point, rode rickshaw, and then even a horse. She powered through monsoons, a smallpox scare, and a five-day delay in Sri Lanka. When she arrived in Hong Kong on Christmas Eve, she found that she had a rival. Elizabeth Bislin had been sent on the same journey by Cosmopolitan magazine. The only difference was she was heading east instead of west. So I wonder if they met in the middle anywhere. If they like just randomly crossed paths yeah. at some point. Yeah. Hey. Like, hey, how's it going? Great. And they have like no clue what the other person's doing. Yeah. <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, Bislin actually had a three-day lead on Bly until she hit England. Uh, when she hits England, her boat left without her, and she was forced to take a slower ship out of Ireland that would cost her the lead. She's also going to hit, like, horrible, horrible weather. It was considered to be, like, the worst weather the Atlantic had ever seen, so her life is pretty miserable at that point. When Bly was in France, she's actually going to meet up with Jules Verne, who encourages her to beat the time in the book. She'll arrive in Jersey City by train on January 15th, 25th, 1890, one of the most famous women in the world. Trading cards and other products bore her image. The trip had taken her 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes. Bislin will come in four and a half days later. So she basically lost seven days because of the boat ride. Yeah. I mean, they both beat the book. They did. But if you're not first, you're last, as Ricky Bobby once said. Is that right? Is that the right quote? 
<laughs> Following the trip, Bly would write and embark on speaking tours, making large sums of money. But in 1890, her brother Charles would die. And she's going to step in and help take care of his wife and his two children. In 1893, she'd rejoin the world and dominate the Sunday features. She would cover the Pullman uh, strikes in Chicago. Pullman, they made luxury uh, train cars. And it's one of the first like labor strikes that you really see in, in American labor history. Uh, once again, she tried looking at the fate of women in New York City jails and then also factories. She also took on corruption against New York state legislators. Ooh, she may be in contact with Dan Sickles. There's a good chance she she crossed paths with one Daniel Sickles. Oh, I got to look that up. Uh, she would also interview Susan B. Anthony, Emma Goldman, and Eugene B. Debs. Um, she was actually considered like radical because she was she was interviewing these people that wanted to make like completely logical reforms in American society. It was like, oh, you're a radical. You, you're, you're interviewing Susan B. Anthony that wants women to have rights. Oh, this is madness. This is madness. Go back to the asylum. <laughs> In 1895, she get married to millionaire Robert Livingston Seaman, even though she often proclaimed no desire to marry. Seaman was 73 years old, and he would be the owner of the Ironclad Manufacture Company. They made milk cans, barrels, and other steel products. She was also 31, so... It makes a 42 year age difference. All right. That's kind of. Uh. <laughs> Fans joke that she. You actually got to believe, like, 1890, 73 is old. Like, that's like. Yeah. Life expectancy is like 60. <laughs> so, okay. It'd be like marrying like a 100 year old these days. Fans joke that she married him for the story, but she would retire from journalism and began to run his business of 1,500 factory workers. She would even make a patent uh, or get a patent on a milk can design. She's also quite the engineer. Uh, when her husband dies in 1904, she became, so what that makes him... 82. 82. Wow. He lived wow, a long really, life. Yeah. Uh, she would become one of the leading female industrialists in the world. She provided working gymnasiums, libraries, and health care for her workers. She really saw the benefit of if your workers are healthy, if your workers are happy, they'll work harder for you. What a novel concept. All right. This is 1904, still a time in industry where workers have very little rights. If you get injured, if you get sick, you're fired. There, there's there's, there's no worker protections. 1914, she tries to go on vacation to Vienna aboard the RMS Oceanic for a three-week three vacation. Um, and then World War I breaks out. So she obtains a press credential and stays there for the next four years reporting on the conflict. New York Evening Journal would publish Nellie Bly on the firing line. After the war, she returns back home. She would continue to write and work to aid abandoned and orphaned children. In 1922, though, she gets pneumonia and dies at the age of 57. In her obituary, it stated she was the best reporter in America. So that is the story of Nellie Bly, also known as Nellie Cochran, also known as, oh, what was her other name? Nellie Moreno. Or Pinky. Or Pinky. Yes. I wonder if they said that. that that's on her headstone. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and uh, come back and listen next week. 
Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.